0: It is, uh, it's good to be here um, with y'all, and I want to I wanna do something that I wouldn't normally do, and that's I want to preach this pac- passage backwards, okay? So I want to start in verse 14 and then kind of work backwards from there um, because in verse 14 we get what is the crux of the whole passage, and um, one of the challenges that a passage like this um, presents to me Um, And to all the the redemption communicators this morning um, is that this has been one of the most important passages in the recent development of my, and I would say our, theology. Right. So if you've been here any amount of time, you have certainly heard Luke uh, reference uh, a man named Tim Keller. Um, he has either referenced him or totally just ripped him off because um, he has shaped everything that we do and, and how we think and, and how we do theology. And this verse, specifically Galatians 2.14, lies at the very core um, of what we believe about the gospel and the manifold implications of the gospel. And so the challenge for me is to not preach in such a way where my mouth is moving but Keller's words are coming out, right? Um, And to preach in such a way um, that it doesn't become another redundant message about the implications of the gospel right? So I was talking to Luke about this and asking how the series is going. He said he prefaced this whole series by saying, listen, we know we've been successful in terms of preaching Galatians if by about halfway through you're going, we get it. The gospel's important. We're sick of it please stop talking about the gospel. Um, And that's where we know we've had success because Galatians will over and over and over and over and over pound into you um, the importance of gospel centrality. What is the gospel and, and what does it mean to live in light of the gospel? So This passage that we come to this morning, specifically verse 14, as Paul says, he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That phrase in this context has shaped us significantly as a church. And so I want to start with a quick recap of what that is, how that shaped us, why this matters, and then Paul gives us a couple of examples in verses 11, 12, and 13. Okay, So if you weren't here the last couple of weeks, I want to catch up on the story a little bit. Paul had previously been a church planter in Galatia, had spread the gospel to these people. We saw in chapter one, verse six, he says, I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. That very recently, Paul had been amongst them, teaching them the gospel. People had come to faith, the church was built, and now other people are coming in and distorting and twisting that gospel. And so Paul goes back to the beginning of his ministry and says, listen, he, Here's how this went down. I got saved. Christ presented himself to me, gave me the gospel. I got trained up. I went back to Jerusalem. Peter, James, and John approved me as an apostle, sent me out to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. I I came to you. I've come to Antioch. I've come amongst the Gentile people, the non-Jewish people, and I've spread the gospel. And they were behind me. And now some of these guys from Jerusalem are coming to you and, and distorting, twisting, adding to the purity of of what I taught to you. So he goes, don't be led astray. So what we, the, the part of the story that we find ourselves in here now is that not only has, has uh, Paul been there in Antioch, Peter's there in Antioch, but now these guys have come from James in Jerusalem and are, are holding these Gentile Christians to a standard that includes um, a bunch of Jewish regulations, right? And so Paul is going to go straight at Peter because as these Jews have come back in, Peter has drawn back. Um, from the Gentile Christians and kind of aligned himself with these cronies from Jerusalem. And, and Paul says, listen, that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so he's going to confront Peter and call him on his hypocrisy. Okay, so we'll get to all that. But in order to be able to understand any of it, we've got to be able to understand what is the gospel, what does it mean to be walking in, in step with the truth of the gospel, and, and then why does this matter? Okay, so very briefly, I want to, for our purposes, define the gospel um, in a not novel way, but just as a refresher course, um, as the story, the big picture story of the Bible, right? The the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, big arc of the Bible. And, And I'll say this. I grew up in a Christian home, right? My, my parents were Christians. They got saved um, later in life in their 20s, uh, right before they met each other. And, and I grew up in this great, what's, what's great about getting saved in your 20s or as a semi-adult, which I would consider someone in their 20s, um, is that you come at it with fresh eyes. So when I read um, stories of Noah and Jonah and Moses and Abraham, it's hard for me to not um, think of them on a felt board in Sunday school class right? When I hear about Father Abraham, I just start doing this, right? Like, it's just, just part of who I am. And if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, means you didn't grow up in church, more power to you, okay? You come at it with, with adult eyes, okay? So I, I grew up in a fantastic Christian home. My grandparents were missionaries in Kenya and Sudan. My parents were always super involved in church, never like legalistic or, or heavy handed or anything, just a great, great experience, But about four years ago, when I was introduced to Tim Keller and and a gospel-centered way of looking at the scriptures, it it didn't so much change me 180 degrees or even 90 degrees, but it, it just deepened my understanding of what I already knew, connected so many of these dots that had previously been disconnected, right? So I would look at the Old Testament and and as a Sunday school bred Christian, I'm um, think of it as a series of disjointed stories bordering on mythology that were connected only by chronology, but not by theme or or any ultimate destiny whatsoever. And so as I as I started to be able to to see the connection, not only of a gospel centered reading of the scriptures, but a what we'll call a redemptive historical arc to the Bible, which means Everything from Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 on points to Jesus over and over and over. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. So not only is the gospel this big story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but the climax of that story is Jesus entering into our world, God becoming human, entering in, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, Being raised on the third day, overcoming Satan, sin, and death, and our participation in that, our stepping into that story and realizing what has always been true, right? So when you become a Christian, it's not as if you go from not having anything to do with the story to all of a sudden, that's your story. It's been your story all along. You cannot exist outside of God's creation. You just didn't know it or recognize it before, Okay, so accepting Christ, accepting the gospel means going, oh my gosh, there is a bigger story that I'm a part of, and now I'm stepping into that knowingly, and we'll begin to now experience the implications of it. So beginning with forgiveness of sins, that the story of the Bible teaches that um, God created all things as he intended them to be, perfect, without blemish, without spot, without frustration, without rebellion. That, that something went horribly wrong, that people rebelled against God, broke that relationship with God, and God sent his son to pay for that, to rectify the situation. And now we exist in this last quadrant before the restoration when things will be back to how they were at the very beginning. And so when Paul tells Peter, you're, you're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, he's saying, listen, you entered into this story, Peter, which means you, you began to understand or at least began to acknowledge the fact that there was a whole arc co- happening before you and now you are going to continue to walk in such a way as to be consistent with this story of the gospel and live out the implications of Christ, God himself, becoming man, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, and being raised on the third day and all that that means from there on. So he approaches Peter with, with this presupposition, which is very, very different um, than many of the presuppositions we bring to problems like this. Right, So every day, every single person encounters millions and millions of different scenarios, whether they be relationships, whether they be choices that we make, um, issues at work, wh- whatever they are, whatever that choice is, we ask ourselves a certain set of questions, usually like this and usually subconsciously, but those, the answers to those questions direct our steps. So here's an illustration. Last night, right, I told you I have a -a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a six-month-old son. Um, They are both sick and have been for the last three-and-a-half years, seems like. (laughs) And for those of you who are parents, in fact, raise your hand if you are a parent. Excellent. When I ask that question in Tempe, it's just me raising my hand. Um, So there's some, this illustration will finally work. So... (laughs) When you are a parent and your kids are sick, it pretty much ruins your life, right? Because um, you don't sleep whatsoever. See, these foolish people, if you are here um, and, and you have a newborn and you're thinking, I don't know what these parents have been complaining about. My baby's perfect. She, he just sleeps all the time. And, you know, when he wakes up and cries, he just goes, ah, ah, and that's his cry. My baby, I don't know what these parents, um, wait till they turn three months, that's when the demon enters them. And from three months until about six months, you hate your baby, okay? I'll just prepare you for what is inevitable, okay? They don't sleep, they don't like you, they don't like anything, they hate the world, okay? They're like teenagers, but with no control over their body. Actually, neither do teenagers, so it doesn't matter. So last night, as has happened for the last month, um, this, this rhythm, and every parent will know what I'm talking about. So you're laying in bed, you're comfortable, especially now that it's cold, um, you're, all, you're all comfy and warm, and you hear the first whimper. The first of what you know is soon to be a scream, um, you hear that first whimper, and the reaction of every parent is to freeze. And you think to yourself, if she thinks I'm asleep, she'll get up. And so you just you kind of keep breathing. <laughs> See, you all know this. You all do this. And you just go, okay, it's like playing a game of parent chicken because the first one to move has to get up, right? And so you just, mm, you know, like a little, maybe a snore, mix in a snore just to, and you just wait. And, and this, this you start to have horrible thoughts in your head too. Sinful, dirty, evil thoughts. Like, well, I've gotten up four times and she's only gotten up three times. It's her turn. And if she doesn't get up, she isn't keeping track. And maybe I, sh- maybe I should get a scoreboard. And every time we get up, we get to hit the scoreboard. Or, more personally, um, you think last night, you know what, tomorrow morning, I have to deliver the word of the Lord. <laughs> How dare she make me get up? Think of the people of Gateway. And so you play this game. And, and there are a series of questions going on in your head that you're answering. And the question is almost never, what behavior would be in step with the truth of the gospel? At 3 a.m., there is no gospel. There is only warmth and comfort. And so you are asking yourself, why do I deserve to get up right now? Why should I get up with her daughter, right? <laughs> if she would have just fed him more, he wouldn't be awake right now. I mean, these, all of these things are running through your head. They are qu- different questions then the question that should be running through your head, the question that should drive all of your behavior. And so this happens a million times a day in a million different scenarios. And we ask ourselves all kinds of different questions. In In a business scenario, in a family scenario, you come home after a long day of work and your kids are crazy and you start to ask yourself questions. And the answers to those questions dictate your behavior In that scenario so there's a lot of different questions I wrote down a couple of thoughts maybe your question is what is the moral thing to do you grew up in church and you've been taught to ask the question what is the moral thing to do in this scenario maybe it's what is the popular thing to do what is conventional wisdom on this what will ruffle the least amount of feathers what will earn me the most money what will earn me the most influence what will feel the best you ask yourself these questions we all ask ourselves these questions. Every decision you've ever made is the answer to some question that you asked yourself subconsciously. That, that's just, everybody acts that way. Christian, non-Christian. Every decision we make is the result of some thought in our head that we arrive at a conclusion and then we act. Okay. What Paul is saying to Peter is, You're you're asking the wrong question because what Peter did is when these influential Jewish people came from Jerusalem, he began to draw back from hanging out with these Gentiles. Now, it's not clear here explicitly, but I think we can assume that we're talking about Gentile Christians here and not like crazy, sinful, dregs of society Gentiles that are you know, hookers and drug addicts. And it's not talking about this. We're talking about a certain kind of Christian that Peter deemed um, not worthy of his presence once these other people showed up. And so Paul's going, Peter, you're not asking the question um, what behavior's in line with the truth of the gospel. You're asking maybe um, what will give me the most influence with these guys from Jerusalem. Maybe you're asking yourself, um, what will not get me fired from my job as pillar of the church? Maybe you're asking the question, Peter, what would be the most popular decision? What would make me um, the, the best Christian in the eyes of these people? What will ruffle the least amount of feathers? What will give me, right? There's a series of questions that we ask ourselves. That that Peter might have been asking himself as he drew away from these Gentiles. Okay, but the question that he should have been asking was, "What is consistent with the truth of the gospel?" Okay, so what's interesting to think about is um, these questions that we ask reveal in us the desires that we have, right? And so um, it. It seems consistent to think if we're consistently asking the question, um, what will gain us the most influence, what we truly desire in this world is influence. If the question that we're asking is, um, what will make these people like me and accept me, what we're looking for most is for those people to like us and accept us. If we're asking ourselves, okay, yeah, but what's going to make me the most money, then what we desire most fully in our hearts is money because in every scenario there's probably a thousand questions that we could ask that would drive us to whatever conclusion which would drive our behavior and so the question that we ask is ultimately a revelation of what we desire to be the end game of the situation so if peter thought that those guys could give him money if if he thought the gentiles would give him money and what he really wanted was money he wouldn't care about the opinion of the jews he would pursue the gentiles with money If what he really desired was influence at the church in Jerusalem, he would side with the Jews who came from the church in Jerusalem because they had influence and could give it to him. So he would reject the Gentiles because that's what he wanted more than anything else. If he wanted to please Paul, there would be a different answer. If he wanted to reach the lost, there would be a different answer to a different question, which would reveal a different desire. So all of this goes together, and and again, it it illustrates the fundamental shift that we see in Jesus' ministry from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from what we experienced before we are believers to what we experience as believers. That the Old Testament was primarily about physical and external, that the gospel is about spiritual and internal. What do you want? What do you truly desire? What do you truly value? The gospel changes starting here and moves out to what we do and what our behavior is okay so before we look at these three examples um, there is one assumption that that paul makes going into this whole thing that is probably potentially not an assumption that you make and that's this the best life is a life driven by the gospel the best, most satisfying, most peaceful, most joyful, happiest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of the things that your heart and soul crave most fully. Everything that you have been genetically designed to want most, that every human wants, that acceptance, that love, everything that you desire will be experienced most fully from a life In step with the truth of the gospel. That's Paul's conviction. And why he can wholeheartedly teach people, move people, motivate people, convict people, confront even Peter to live in step with the gospel. Not because it's the right thing necessarily, though it is, but because it's the best and most fullest way to be human. It's the best and most and, and, and fullest way to experience who God has made us to be. It's the most Eden like life. It's the most heaven like life that we can experience here on earth. Life lived in step with the truth of the gospel. And so it's with that conviction. That, that Paul can go to Peter and confront him. That Paul can teach, not only all through Galatians, but through his many epistles, what that life is. Because he goes, at the end, you will be most fulfilled when you live this life. Okay, So we see three examples of this. So let's go back up to verse 11. We see three examples of this, um, of the application of the gospel in, in three different spheres. Okay? So verse 11 says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So Paul is in the midst of trying to convince the Galatians, listen, the, what, the gospel you heard from me is the true gospel. And these d- distortions that these Jews have been bringing from Jerusalem, they're not right. It's not right. So he goes, when, when Cephas, when Peter came to Antioch, he was engaged with the Gentiles. He was doing it right. He was living in step with the truth of the gospel. But then something changed, and we'll get to that in a moment, something changed, and Paul says, so I confronted him to his face because he stood condemned. It was clear that he was not living in in line with the gospel. So one of the things we get to see illustrated here is what gospel confrontation looks like. Right? Confrontation is not something that um, really often goes well, Right? I mean, many of us do not like confrontation. I would ask you to raise your hand if you don't like confrontation, but you probably wouldn't because you wouldn't want to confront the people that do like confrontation. Um, I, I love confrontation. Probably more. See, here's the thing. People either hate it and avoid it or they love it and they look for it. Either way, bad, right? Either way, that does not go well. What we have here is an example of how gospel confrontation can go well. A couple of things that, that Paul does. One, he goes right to the heart of it. Goes right to Peter's face. Doesn't talk to Barnabas about it. Doesn't talk to Silas about it. Doesn't talk to anybody else about how Peter is such a racist. He goes straight to Peter. He goes, what's going on, man? Why are you doing this? Right to his face, not going around anything. Second thing, he's humble. Paul is clearly humble when he he interacts with Peter on this issue. How do I know this? Because he tells this story of how he goes straight to Peter, how he talks to Peter, how he confronts Peter to his face about this issue of the gospel. And then at the end, after verse 14, after he talks about this, he goes into the part right where he says, and then I said this to Peter, and Peter said this back, and I said this back, and then, and then his buddy jumped in, but then I stopped his buddy, and then in the end, Peter's like, man, Paul, you're totally right. You're the best apostle. No. He doesn't say any of that. All Paul says is, listen, he stood condemned because he wasn't walking in line with the truth of the gospel. And then he drops it. He doesn't say, yeah, and in the end, I won. He did not say, in the end, Peter acknowledged that he was a total hypocrite racist. He just says, listen, it, this, is, this is an issue about the gospel. This is, this is an issue for Peter and for me to talk about. This isn't about me proving that I'm Right? Our confrontations will go a lot better and be a lot more gospel motivated if our point isn't to prove that we were right. Okay, I I feel like that point alone could save half our marriages. If we would confront and argue in such a way as to not try to be right, but just get to the heart of it and heal, I think we'd be better off. The last and most important and the clearest reason why this is such a gospel-saturated con- uh, uh, confrontation is that when Paul goes to Peter, he doesn't go to Peter and say, which, which was true, but he doesn't go to Peter and go, hey, Peter, why are you being such a racist? Does that ever go well, accusing someone of being a racist? That's not not what he does. He doesn't go to the behavior of what Peter's doing and put an ism on it and go, man, why are you doing this? Why are you being so bad? Why are you doing this wrong thing? He goes to Peter and says, don't you remember the gospel, man? Don't don't you remember that when Christ came to you, he crossed all kinds of lines to be able to come to you, to engage you. He put aside your race. He put aside your activity. He put aside your sin, your rebellion, your selfishness. Put aside all of it to come to you. Remember the grace that you received, Peter? Why would you not extend that same grace that you received? Remember when God made you his own? Remember when God adopted you into his family at great cost to himself? Peter, do you remember Jesus gaining anything, any influence, any power, any money when he saved you? No. Do you remember how Jesus walked in step with the truth of the gospel? Walked in line with God's big story of the world, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story? Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, if there is any other way, Father, if this cup could pass from me, yet not my will, yours be done. Remember when Jesus, at great cost to himself, crossed lines, rejected the scorn, the shame, the pain of the cross, to save you, to be with you. There's all kinds of lines in in our society. There's racial lines and socioeconomic lines. There's lines of popularity. There's bosses and employees. There are all kinds of lines in our world. None of those lines is thicker, wider, or more substantial than the line between divinity and humanity, which was the line that Jesus crossed to come to you. Therefore, in in light of the line that Jesus crossed to come to you, there is no other secondary line that we ought not cross. Ever. So Paul comes to Peter and doesn't say, Why are you being such a racist? Quit it. He comes and says, Man, don't you remember the gospel? Don't you remember how Christ sacrificed everything for you in spite of who you were, in spite of your unfaithfulness? In spite of the fact that you rejected him three times? In spite of the fact that he let you walk on water and you were such a fool that you drowned? Don't you remember all that? And yet he died. And he said, you're my pillar, you're my rock. Why would we not walk in line with the truth of the gospel like Jesus did? That that totally changes it. That totally changes the confrontation. It, it, it ceases to become, I'm not a racist, you are a racist. And it goes, remember how we share in the grace and truth of the gospel? Why are we not walking in that? That's how the gospel informs confrontation. Number two, verse 12. says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he grew back, drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. I'll say this as an aside, that's the worst kind of party I've ever heard. <laughs> if anyone ever invites you to a circumcision party, say no. Just just words of wisdom. We, we have two potential things going on here. So, these Gentiles, we, we don't know for sure that all of the Gentiles mentioned here were believers or, or unbelievers. So we've got two potential issues. One is one of evangelism and mission, and one is that of fellowship, Christian community, right? So what we know about Antioch was that it was a very different place um, than Jerusalem. Jerusalem, though not under uh, a Jewish rule at the time, under Roman rule, um, was a very Jewish influenced city. The Jewish stuff was everywhere, it was pervasive culturally. Antioch was very different. Antioch was this melting pot. It was a shipping line between east and west. And so there was all different kinds of people and not not a pervasive Jewish culture whatsoever. And so for, for people of different races and backgrounds to be eating meals together was no big deal in Antioch. And if you were going to be a missionary to Antioch, you had to eat meals with people who were not of your same race or socioeconomic strata. You had to. It was part of the culture. And when Peter came, he dove right in and he was eating with the Gentiles, be they non-believers or believers, he was engaging with them. And so when these Jewish legalists came and said, how could you do this? Which, by the way, was rooted in generations and generations of law and practice. I mean, it become almost mythological to take this kind of stand on eating unclean food. And so when Peter comes in, and, and begins to gradually draw back from these relationships. Paul's going, whoa, 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 whoa. If we're going to do mission. If we're going to do evangelism in step with the truth of the gospel, then once again, these lines, these arbitrary human lines are nothing compared to the line that Christ crossed to come to us, to be with sinners, to wipe away all of the prejudices and save at great cost to himself, cost to his reputation, cost to his physical being, cost I mean, it, it cost him his life. There is no cost that we should not be willing to pay to engage if we're walking in line with the truth of the gospel. So be it evangelism, be it uh, fellowship and community, we as humans want to essentially revert back to high school clique politics and, and answer different questions questions like what will get me the most influence if i'm going into the the work cafeteria and there's a table full of the bosses and a table full of the employees who should i go sit with who should i engage who who can help me get up the next step of the ladder rather than walking into that room and asking the question how can i live and step with the truth of the gospel now, maybe that means eating with the bosses, and sometimes it's going to mean eating with the employees, and sometimes it's going to mean eating by yourself, and sometimes it's going to mean fasting, and sometimes it means a whole bunch of other stuff. But asking the right question and allowing the answer to that question to drive your behavior in those moments. Number three, number thir- verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Um, what this tells me is that leadership and influence works good or bad it works people who are influential and act in a certain way will have followers follow them so these men who came from jerusalem were very influential people they came probably with a letter of recommendation from james in their hand going hey we're we're here from the jerusalem church oh wow that's a big deal They're influencers. So much so that Paul goes, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is one of the good guys. And yet your legalism led him away from the gospel. So he stopped asking the question, what is in step with the truth of the gospel? And started going, well, man, maybe maybe I should do this. What? What will they say if I don't do this? What what will these guys from Jerusalem say? What will they tell James? What will Peter do if I keep eating with Gentiles? What will they say? What will my reputation be if I keep doing this? Asking the wrong questions. See, There's this insidious thing about, about legalism that is so attractive to us. Legalism offers us the control that we covet. Now it's a mirage in the end but it, it gives us at least the impression that we control our world because rules can be followed. And when we follow rules, we expect a return. We expect someone to give us whatever we are promised for following the rules. So there's a measure of control, not over our, only over ourselves, but over other people. And the only thing we want more than to control our own lives is to control the people around us. And when we set up a a legalistic environment where people have to follow a set of rules or else they feel our wrath, we've controlled them, controlled their behavior. And if their behavior gets out of our control, we've controlled their consequences. We want to be everybody's daddy and mommy. So there's something very insidious and tempting about legalism, though most of us would go, oh, legalism, that sounds terrible, it sounds so tight, and yet we all do it. Okay. I think many of us growing up, and I'll just say this for me, I'm sure you guys are all different and way holier, um, but for me, <laughs> um, even growing up in a, in, a, in a very healthy Christian environment, I always kind of thought about, um, my faith as a cage, and, and we'll even say it was a big cage, not one of those mean cages, um, but a, a, a cage nonetheless where I had a lot of freedom to walk around and do what I wanted to do, but there were limits, right? And there, there was an edge of the cage, and when I went over that edge or climbed through that edge, I was outside the cage and I was in sin, okay? And so what we do when we have a cage is we play, this, we play the game that our three-year-olds play, which is the I'm not touching you game. Right? And so we get as close as we possibly can to the edge of the cage and go, well, it's not sin. I'm not technically sinning. I'm not actually sinning. See, if I was there, I'd be sinning, but I'm right here. And so I'm not sinning technically. Okay, And so what do you do when your three-year-old has your six-month-old's arm in the back of the car and is yanking on it um, because she wants to see his arm, but he's in the car seat next to her? And you say, don't touch your brother's arm. And so she goes, okay, and puts her hand just around his arm. What do you want to do while you're driving? You want to do this, <laughs> right? Okay, right? Honest parents. The rest of you are just dirty liars. It's all, it's, <laughs> we all just think the same. I, I think God feels the same way. When, when we go, okay, there's this cage, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to live right here on the outskirts. God's going, stop! That, that is, it, it will be my goal as a parent to someday get it through my child's head that when you have a good attitude and you obey Daddy, I'll give you pretty much anything. Ponies, <laughs> castles, whatever. Whatever I... That, She can win so many points by just going, okay, Daddy, I love you, Daddy. Whatever you say, Daddy, I'll be like, fine, whatever, here's my wallet. Do it. (laughs) But when she has a bad attitude and when she wants to live right here, I go, you make me not want to do anything for you. You're missing the point. It's not that God's going to go, well, you don't really want to obey me totally. You don't have a great attitude, so I'm I'm going to curse you. No, we're missing the point. The point is that there is a gospel, that there is a truth about the world, that it is the best, most satisfying, most peace-giving, most loving, most accepting way to live in the universe. And so when we're over here kind of trying to sneak by, God's going, you're so dumb. I want to give you everything your soul desires. Just walk in line with the truth of the gospel. It is is the closest thing to Eden and heaven that we can ever experience until heaven. Walk and step with the truth of the gospel. This this is the foundational question. It's not about how how close, what are the parameters of Christianity. The fundamental idea of Christianity is to plumb the depths of the question, what are the implications of the gospel? So it was perfect, it got really broken, we all rebelled, God became a man, sacrificed everything for our sake, to redeem us, to allow us to experience what he wanted us to experience at the very beginning, And we have been adopted into his family through that. We are called his sons and daughters. We have been made new creations. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been showered grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. And all we have to do is ask the question, so what? What's that mean for right now? What's that mean for this decision and the next decision and the next decision and the next decision? So that I can walk in step with the truth of the gospel. The way I visualize this is... um, is a relay race, okay, it's gonna be very simplistic, but it helps me get my mind around it. When, when the first runner, guy on the first leg of the race, is running in a particular direction, and the guy in front of him starts to run, right, he hands in the baton, and what's the second guy do? Make a right turn and go this way? No, what would happen if he made a right turn and went that way? They'd lose, okay, don't overthink it, they'd lose. He's in the stands. That's not how it works, okay? When he hands him the baton, the next guy goes in the same direction. That is the simplest illustration I can give you for what it means to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. That everything we see in Jesus' life leading up to and through his death and resurrection is an example of what it means to live in step with the truth of the gospel. And so we look at everything he did and go, okay, that's it. That's the best, most full experience of humanity possible. Walk and step with the truth of the gospel. I'll finish with this quote from Tim Keller. It says, the main problem in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We fail to grasp it and believe it through and through. Luther said, the truth of the gospel is the, the principal article of all Christian doctrine." Most necessary is it that we know this article well, that we teach it to others, that we beat it into their heads continually. We live around the truth of the gospel, but to some degree still do not get it. So the key to continual, deeper spiritual renewal is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. Let's pray.